0: Today is October 11th, 2020. We are reading from the big book of AA, pages 35, the second full paragraph. Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. And we'll be reading through page 37, the third paragraph, which starts, in certain circumstances, we have gone out deliberately. Um, today, Claire Kaye will be our reader. And that will be followed by a 20-minute share by Lisa L.B. So Claire, if you could read for us, please. Sure. Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum he came into contact with us. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. To his consternation he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he is a real alcoholic and in serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family, for whom he had a deep affection. Yet, he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry. So I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar for I'd been going to it for years. I'd eaten there many times during the months I was sober. I sat down at the table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking, I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but felt reassured that I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position to say nothing of the intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all the reasons were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. Whatever the price definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? We may think this an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity, how could it have happened? In some cases, we've gone up to get deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient to the light of what always happened, we now see that when we began to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. Thank you so much, Claire. And next, I'm going to introduce our speaker today, which is Lisa L.B. from Florida.
1: Thank you so much, Lisa. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much. Yes, I'm Lisa LB, recovered for today by the grace of God and the miracles it brings me. Um, this program, but I'm grateful to be here and, and thank you so much for the opportunity to share and being asked to do so. Um, I um, I can so identify in with Jim. Uh, I can remember my my most. Uh, My furthest memory of my food addiction was when I was seven years old and I went into my parents' china cabinet and I grabbed the, the bowl of sugar and hid behind it and just shoveled that sugar in my mouth and felt a lot of shame. And I don't know why I felt I had to hide from it because my parents always let us eat sugar packets sure. when we went to restaurants, but that was the start of my eating career. And I went all the way through and, all, and sugar and flour was so important in my life. And all my friends always asked me, why can't you just eat one box? Why can't you just eat one cookie? And I'd say, I don't know. And you know, my sister-in-law could, she could like the same candy and foods I did. And she'd have a handful, put it away and forget it was even there, but I could never do that. And it's funny that you would mention, um, um, earlier before the meeting started about how people were on the meeting yesterday and they, they, they didn't know OA was a 12-step program or anything. It took me until I was 53 years of age in the misery of the food, the vicious cycle we learn about in the doctor's opinion, to finally walk into the doors of OA and that's where I found my home because everyone spoke my language. I thought I was the only one who did the crazy, insane things that we do, um, and and I didn't know anything about the allergy of the body or the obsession of the mind. And that's what this whole chapter is about: is you know that mental obsession and the insanity of our disease. So, um, so I finally found a sponsor. I didn't know anything about a sponsor when I went into OA, and it took me four months to find one. And um, and she really helped me with so many things but especially as we were reading through this big book, she helped me to see how I can identify in with every word that's written in this book. And um, so I'm going to go through each paragraph and show how I was able to identify in um, to good old Jim so you got Jim, you know, um, the example, his first example, he has a charming wife and family. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's intelligent and normal so far as everyone can see. And that was me. I had a family who loved me. I had a family who was supportive. I had great jobs. I had a lot of friends. I had great kids. But then it says, except for a nervous disposition. And Jim had a nervous disposition. You know, he, he's white knuckling it. He's irritable, restless and discontented. And that's exactly how I was when I didn't have the food. And the food was always my solution, thinking, oh, if I just ate something, I'd feel so much better. And then it says he did no drinking until he was 35. And in a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated, he had to be committed. And same with me. Look, my, my eating career started when I was seven years old. He started when he was 35. And we both ended up in the same place, nervous p- disposition, irritable discontent, and miserable. And um, so it doesn't matter how many years or, or months we have in between, we all end up in the same place because our disease is, is so progressive. Um, and then when he left the asylum, he came into contact with us, the people who wrote this book. And they told him what they knew of alcoholism. You know, step one, you know, we have, we're powerless. Our lives are miserable. We have an allergy of the body, an obsession of the mind. And then they told him the answer they had found. You know, step two you know, we, we can't do this on our own. We need a power greater than ourselves. And then he made a beginning. So I'm assuming that means he went on to step three, turning his will and life over to the care of his higher power. And, um, so then it says, um, let's see here. Then it says, uh, um, he began to work for a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking and all went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And I love that phrase, all went well for a time. That was my life. That was my history in, uh, in, in eating before I found recovery in OA, um, seven years ago almost. And um, and you know, all went well for a time, but I was always white knuckling it. I was never comfortable. I was always on edge. I always felt out of my skin and that I didn't belong anywhere, but I, you know, and and that's how I would think that that's how he was, but then it says, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And what does that mean? That means he stopped working the steps. He didn't go on beyond step three. And that to me, the thing I love about this big book is there are so many warnings that we read about when we're going through this big book. And Kim does a great special edition on the warnings and the death threats that we find in this big book from several years ago. But, um, I have so many sponsees and there's no judgment because our statistics prove this. But when we stop, I have many sponsees who have either stopped working the steps as we've carried on, you know, as we've gone through, or they stop living in 10, 11 and 12 and they end up right back in the food. And that's what happens when our disease is untreated because our disease is alive and breathing. And it's always out in my, in my experience, it's always out to get me. Um, so, um, Let's see, then it says, uh, so here's Jim, you know, he fell back, he kept getting drunk and they asked him on the top of page 36, you know, yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. And this is a story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with Joe and Charlie, the the big book thumpers from way back in the day. And, and, you know, who would do a lot of um, conventions um, sharing their experience in this big book and how it changed their life. But you know, they talk about, they joke about what happened to Monday? What happened to Monday? And that was my life. That's how I could identify in my entire life until I found this program seven years ago. It was all about starting Monday. I'm gonna finish this box or this bag, but starting Monday, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm, I'm done. And I really meant it. I really meant it when I said it to myself. And I would say it to my husband, I'd say it to my family, my friends, and I'd maybe last an hour on a Monday and I'd be right back into the food. And my disease loves when I'm in that position. My disease loves when, when I succumb and within an hour into the day on Mondays. It wants me to gloss over my truth. It wants me to live in the delusions instead of the reality. And then it says, um, you know, Jim decides, let's see, he says, I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. And I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. And that's the other thing I could identify in. When I am in my disease, when I'm untreated, my disease is untreated, I will gloss over everything. And when he says, you know, it was um, nothing serious, really, Jim, you lost your business and you're now working for a concern of of the same company. You know, Um, that is serious. But again, my disease wants me to always push my head in the sand or to push any uncomfortable situation under the rug. Next thing you know, the rug is sky high and I can't deal with it anymore. Um, And then he decides to drive into the country to sell a car, which is insanity in itself on that. And he decides to stop at this roadside place that had a bar that he had been to before. He said, I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I would get a sandwich. And that's the other thing that I could so identify in. with. I always said I wasn't going to have another one and I meant it. I really meant it. I know I've said that before, but I really, truly meant it. And next thing you know, I'm at my favorite binge food. If something is upsetting or even if something was happy, it didn't matter. I somehow would end up at my favorite binge food place. And I somehow would end up being back in it. You know, either me or my car would drive me there unconsciously and, and, it also reminds me of the associations, you know, like Jim mentioned, he says here, I had been there many times during the months that I was sober and I hadn't eaten, but he had also been going to it for years. So for the years he was in the drink. So it's the association, you know, And, and I could identify him with that because I'm from the Philadelphia suburbs. And I haven't lived there in a long time, but every time I would go back home to visit my family, I ended up at the Wawa because they had my favorite binge foods, you know, and even though I maybe went just to get a bottle of water next thing, you know, I'm there and just like Jim here with the sandwich. Um, So let's see. Then he says, um, suddenly on that next paragraph, suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. How profound is that? The word suddenly, the definition for that word, it means quick and unexpectedly. And that really jumps out at me because that's the real mental obsession at play. And it reminds me of a lurking notion that we talked about last Sunday on, I think it's on page 32, you know, and lurking means to wait in ambush. And my disease when untreated is always waiting for a crack or a crevice to slither into because it wants to get me again. And the mental obsession kicks in so quickly, you know, and that's what happens with the suddenlies. And here Jim is now, suddenly right back into the drinks. Oh, had one, didn't, you know, what's he saying here? The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it in more milk and that didn't seem to bother me at all. So I tried another. And the suddenlies got me every time. The suddenlies always pushed me back in the food, even though I vaguely sense I wasn't being too smart. The suddenlies always put me in the classification of a, of a compulsive overeater. The suddenlies always differentiated me from my sister-in-law who could have the same binge foods. I mean, the same like the same food I did, but could put it away and not think about it. The suddenlies are always start at that first bite where one's too many and a hundred's not enough. And then the suddenlies lead me back to the vicious cycle that we learned about in the doctor's opinion. I put the allergy in my body, the craving kicks in, the effect kicks in, I succumb to it, the spree, then the remorse, the horrendous remorse, and then the swearing off, I'm never gonna do this again. And again, I'm never gonna do this again until I finish this bag, finish this box, and starting on Monday. And that was how I could identify him with Jim. You know, the suddenlies always got me right back into that vicious cycle. And then on that next paragraph, the bottom of page 36, you know, Jim started again. um, One more journey to the asylum. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. And it doesn't matter how much knowledge we have. We've, we've, we've proven that to ourselves over and over and over, Um, you know? And, um, but it's interesting because the foolish idea, how could I identify him with that? Jim saying, you know, that he'd be okay because he's mixing, mixing whiskey on with milk on a full stomach, you know? And my foolish idea was when I was, you know, actively in my addiction, I went nine months without candy. And, and I, and I, and it was really hard for me, but I was at the movies one night and I suddenly, suddenly had the idea that I will just eat candy when I go to the movies. And I said to my husband, I'm gonna get candy. He's like, okay, he's not, he's not an addict. So I took a bite of that candy. I bought a box and a bag. I took a bite and it tasted like crap because I hadn't had it in nine months but I still ate it because I had the foolish idea that I could eat candy when I only go to the movies. And my husband remembers me, excuse me, always saying, do you want to go to the movies? Do you want to go to the movies? Because I always kept wanting to go to the movies so I could get my fix. And, um, and then it got to a point where I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I was right back into the, into the candy, just like Jim was right back into that drink that day. So these delusions, my, my disease always wants me, My mental obsession is always going to push me back and think that it's it's a good idea and it's never a good idea because I'm back in the vicious cycle again. And then to continue on on page 37, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? And the insane idea always won out for me, always, just like it always went out for Jim. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you can't even put it into words, you know, but it pushed Jim back into the asylum. It pushed me right back into the candy and the, and the flour and the sugar and everything else, which is miserable. And then it says, you may think this an extreme case To us, it is not far-fetched for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us, and we have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences. But there was always the curious mental phenomenon that, parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check, and the insane idea won out. And the next day we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity, how could it have happened? And, you know, I don't think it's an extreme case because it describes me to a T I am the real deal. I am not the moderate and I am not the hard eater. I am the real true addict. And Jim is proving that he is too, because he can't get through being at this just going to get the sandwich and next thing you know, the foolish idea that he can drink the whiskey um, and the milk on a full stomach. And, um, and I could give you a hundred reasons why, why, why I ate, but I probably had more why I didn't eat because I didn't understand that I had the allergy of the body, the obsession of the mind. I didn't understand I was living in an insane world because it was my norm for decades. Again, I didn't come into this program till I was 53 years of age. You know, I had a lot of history behind me. And I don't know how much Jim did, but even in the 35 years, I'm sure, I mean, not starting till 35, I'm sure he was still quite miserable pretty quickly. Um, but the mental obsession and those suddenlies and the lurking notions are always out there. And they come, just, they just come and, um, and we succumb. So, and then that last paragraph, you know, in some circumstances, we've gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like, you know, I I love planning out my binges. I couldn't wait for my husband to go on, you know, on his, um, business trips so that I didn't have to hide my wrappers and lie that I had, you know, had a big lunch when really I'd binged all day. You know, I, I was, I love planning out my binges and I couldn't, you know, and, um, and then it says, but even this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened we now see that when we began to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. So how could I identify in with that? I had been eating so much sugar for so many decades that my body could not break it down anymore. In 15 minutes, I would be in excruciating pain of eating something. Jim ended up in the asylum many times. I ended up in the ERs several times because my stomach would be so distended and I'd be in excruciating pain. And I looked four months pregnant and the doctors could never find out what was wrong with me. I finally diagnosed myself. My body could not break down the sugar anymore and it would just pop right out. And I would plan my binges, like if I knew I had a wedding then that weekend, cause it would take, it would pop out, you know, but then it would take like three days to go back down. So I would plan my, my events around when I was gonna binge because my stomach and how it would be, you know, smaller or bigger, it was, it's, it's insanity. Um, but anyway, it came down to the point where 15 minutes, I, I would be sitting with my husband and I would sit down with either a box or a bag, whatever, or both. And my husband would look at me and he would say, don't even complain to me in 15 minutes. And I would say, I won't, because I, I, in my foolish mind, I won't. It's gonna be a different outcome because I'm a true addict and I can't, my disease wants me to live in the delusion instead of the reality. And it, within 15 minutes, I would excuse myself, I would go into the bathroom, I would be holding my stomach in excruciating pain and I would be sobbing quietly so my husband didn't hear me. And if that's not plain insanity, I don't know what is. But that was my existence for decades. And, um, and it's not a fun place to be. And you know, so in conclusion, you know, what does it all come down to? You know, I am the true addict. I have to um, concede to my innermost self, as we read about in the beginning of this chapter, that I am the real deal. And that I can't be playing around anymore. And the only thing that's going to work for me is by living in these steps, because the steps are the only thing that remove the mental obsession that's always going to bring me to the suddenlies, to the lurking notions, and back into the misery of my disease. And I'm grateful today to be able to say, you know, that I am recovered for today. And as long as I keep working it each day, um, and doing it along with all side with all of you. Um, I can continue to live, you know, happy, joyous, and free as this big book promises and live in the promises of this of this big book. So with that, I pass. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Lisa. So Claire, you can stop the recording.